0: That Triathlon Show, 186. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and in this episode I do the second part of the questions and answers uh, polarized training special that I started in episode 178 which in turn was a a follow-up or a reaction to the great feedback that we had on episode 177 which was the interview with uh, Dr. Steven Seiler on that very concept polarized training. So if you haven't listened to any of those episodes I would encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes first because this episode probably won't uh, be as beneficial without having that background of what we're actually talking about and and what these questions are about so at least listen to episode 177 the interview with uh, dr steven seiler Uh, which is called Polarized Training with Steven Seiler and uh, in that episode we'll go through all the background that you need to know to then understand these questions and answers and be able to learn from them and apply it in your training to make you faster. Big thanks before we start the episode to our sponsors Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com they help you tailor your hydration and your electrolyte intake in particular sodium to your individual sweat rate, and you can do that very simply and easily, and for free, on their website. Just take their free online sweat test, and that will give you an individual hydration and electrolyte strategy that you can apply in racing as well as in in training. And this is, of course, important for all endurance athletes, but especially so if you're racing long distances, like full or half Ironman distance races or you're racing in hot climates uh, then this becomes even more vital for your success on race day so check them out on precisionhydration.com and if you want to try your first box or tube for free use the promo code that show, all one word all caps and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com Roka make wetsuits, suits, swimskins and other triathlon and swimming apparel that is redefining the standard when it comes to performance but also they're moving very heavily in the eyewear direction both uh, in terms of sunglasses for endurance performance or adventure sport and the likes but also even things like prescription glasses is where they're moving and they have plenty of patents for their technologies and for their designs and uh, unique design aspects of uh, their sunglasses whether it's for performance or normal sunglasses or prescription glasses that make them well worth checking out if you need uh, glasses of any sort so check them out there are options to customize your own glasses or sunglasses there are home try-on options etc so definitely go and check it out or of course if you're looking for wetsuits dry suits etc use the promo code TTS all caps to get 20% off your entire order on roca.com. all right so let's get into today's questions and uh, just a quick thank you to everybody who has posted questions on uh, the scientific travel on facebook page and sent me emails and on the trainer road forum as well so that's where these questions are primarily uh, taken from or primarily they're only taken from those three different sources of questions so let's start with uh, the first question and there are quite a few questions here on the topic of uh, time crunched age groupers (laughs) to put it simply and i answered one such question already in episode 178 so the Q&A part one and of course Stephen Seiler talked about it at length in his episode to get the full context listen to actually to the Q&A episode again and uh, in the beginning of that episode I talk about Steven's own training and in short he's training seven hours per week he's uh, 53 years old and he has recently uh, set a new hour of power record for him personally which was 296 watts on the indoor trainer so an hour at 296 watts at 53 years old he's fairly new to cycling as well he's training in a polarized manner on seven hours per week so a lot of the questions that i have here are about time ranges from six to ten hours or so so stephen falls right in that range so i'll actually go through these questions fairly quickly because they are all quite similar to to questions we've already answered but this one from patrick is uh, if you're a cyclist and you're training for seven to eight hours per week, chances are you're not able to do four to five hour rides. Is a schedule with, let's say, two high intensity sessions and then the rest of your training made up of 90 to 120 minutes uh, at low intensity going to be a real benefit? Or would you say that for time crunch athlete, sweet spot threshold, a, a sweet spot threshold or VO2 max mix would be a more suitable option? So just a quick answer to that it's not either or it's uh, you do have the high intensity or moderate intensity or a little bit of both but uh, the question is you need to have that low intensity foundation and that's what we actually one of the main themes of the last Q&A so Q&A part one in episode 178 was that uh, I talked a lot about high volume at low intensity, so HVLT, and it wasn't me that came up with that. It was a, from a listener question actually, but I really liked that concept because it's not about avoiding moderate intensity either, but it's just that the majority, the, the vast majority of our training should be that low intensity. And yes, even at seven to eight hours, that that should be the case. So to answer your question, you are going to do some vo2 max or threshold or sweet spot depending on where you are in your training and what your needs are your goal event demands etc but you're going to do a lot of work in that low intensity zone so those 90 to 120 minute rides for example would be a good example of that they don't have to be all of the rides don't have to be that long i should be clear about that Uh, but uh, but the large majority of your training even at seven to eight hours should be low intensity You you need that that foundation The next question from uh, Martin is, uh, is a 90-10, and this is in terms of total duration, total duration, not uh, number of sessions. Is that polarized split really relevant for an amateur athlete training six to eight hours per week when the low intensity sessions are unlikely to be long enough to create the adaptations of the lo- long zone two rides you'd be doing under a 16 hour per week plan? So again, the rides don't have to be four hours long to create adaptations it's more about consistency over time it is great to get in a weekly long ride it doesn't have to be four hours especially not every week if you get in even one four hour ride per month but maybe two ideally then that would be great but then on weekends when you have less time maybe you go for two two and a half hours and and that's fine Uh, So it is great to have a longer workout per week, but uh, that doesn't mean that short workouts like 45 minutes or 60 minutes at low intensity aren't of any value. So let's hypothetically say that we have two twin brothers or sisters and one of them just uh, is sedentary and the other goes running for a very easy 20-minute jog every day. Or it doesn't even have to be every day. Maybe it's uh, every other day. Those those 20-minute runs are going to make a massive difference. Uh, so so uh, so that's uh, that's an example. It's of course taking it a bit to the extreme. but uh, if twenty minute workouts on the run you might be a bit too short on the bike, but not much, you can twenty minutes is better than nothing, I would still say. If you can do twenty minutes or you can do zero, I would always go for twenty. So uh, so that's that's an example. It's consistency over time. It's not about the so much about the individual workout, although those individual workouts also have value to try to get in some longer rides every time you can but if you can't do it every single week don't despair it's still going to uh, you're still going to be able to to train effectively even even if you can't do a long ride a four-hour ride every single week and the final question on this topic is from uh, Anthony Lane who asks uh what's Siler's viewpoint on the real world applicability for us average Joes who have at most eight to 10 hours to train per week and can't always budget in time for a four plus hour ride every week uh, so I think this has already been answered largely in the, the last couple of questions and also with uh, the Siler case study from himself his own training so go and listen to episode 178 for that uh, four hours is quite long you don't have to go four hours every week two hours is plenty if that's what you have time for for your long ride maybe you can go two times two hours so two hours on saturday two hours on sunday if that's what your time window is but you can do you can repeat it on both weekend days so so there are ways around that for sure and also go back and listen to the to the original interview episode 177 uh, the interview with steven seiler and there you'll hear because we go into this at length in detail on how to how to structure a training week for example for four time crunch age groupers that have that amount of training so the next topic that i want to cover is periodization and uh, this first question is from xaba who writes uh, how does periodization what does periodization look like with polarized training Is it always an 80-20 split between low and high intensity or does it range from, for example, 90-10 to 40-60 depending on the phase you're in? And my answer here is that it could fluctuate a little bit, but not much. In in particular, the distribution, uh, the amount of low intensity training uh, doesn't really change all that much. Uh, Steven mentioned that in cross-country skier, the training becomes even more polarized closer to the race. Uh, but uh, in this context, what he means, I'm pretty sure, is that the easy workouts that are already low intensity, they become even easier, and uh, the hard workouts that are already high intensity, they become slightly harder as as we approach uh, the key races of the season. And my spin on it is the same. Uh, definitely do the easy work even easier as you get closer and closer to the race. That's what I always do, and I notice it. In particular, both on the on the run and the bike, that I, I really make an effort to go slower and slower in my easy runs and, and rides when, when I get close to, to my races compared to what I did in pre-season. Uh, but then the hard work harder, yes, to an extent, but also my spin on this here, this is not from Steven Seiler, but my spin on this is that the hard work becomes more specific, more race-specific. So for long-distance athletes, for example, it actually becomes less polarized because we go from perhaps more high-intensity training to, to moderate intensity, but of course the duration increases, so we might do a lot of long-tempo efforts or race-based efforts. So uh, so that's my spin on how how it changes, but the distribution and in particular the amount of low-intensity training does not really change much, if at all. Next question is from Darf Shivyus. I love that username. Uh, for amateur cyclists, we know, we know many ride about eight to 12 hours per week, and this time is precious. Many of these riders will have a goal not to peak for a single event, but to be uh, good for an entire season of races. So question one, would you suggest an 80 to 20 split between easy and hard work for these athletes pre-season and during the season? and i think the previous question already answered that yes in in general of course it's not uh we're not really bothered about the exact percentage splits but but the principles apply for both pre-season and during season i, I think i don't think that the distribution changes dramatically question two if yes what key workouts would you suggest these athletes program for example, uh, Tuesday four times eight minutes at one hundred five percent FTP, first day two times twenty at ninety five percent FTP, and Saturday long ride at three to four hours. Uh, yeah, for those would be three superb key workouts for uh, for most athletes. Depends, of course, on your event. Like if you're a criterium racer, then it might look very different. But I think for most triathletes. And also for time trial lists, that sort of uh, of key workout layout would it seems perfect to me. Uh, no complaints there. Of course, I hope that there are a couple of other easier, shorter workouts in there as well, because otherwise you have two two hard workouts and and one long ride per week. But I, I think that you you implied that with your question. So probably there are a couple of short, one hour, maybe one and a half hour, easy rides in there as well. Uh, depending on how much time you have of course maybe it's just one one hour ride or a couple of 45 minute rides whatever it may be those would be the key workouts of the week and i do think that that looks like a a really good structure our next question is from uh, chester grimper who writes it, it has never be really been explained in the polarized approach no sorry it has never really been explained if the polarized approach is applicable after the base phase and what is the minimum number of hours required to get good results from polarized approach uh, so as said it, it is a year round thing uh, in particular if we again remember that polarized training we shouldn't take that term too literally because we have found that. It depends a bit on the sport that you're doing. So uh, if you are somebody, let's say a long distance athlete, you do that same amount of low intensity training, but how you choose to use your non-low intensity training might be quite different from a rower or a cross-country skier in that you do more moderate intensity training compared to high intensity training. So it might be an 80-15-5 split versus an eighty-five-fifteen 15 split as an example uh, but with that said yes it is a year round thing really and you can uh, probably what changes usually is that those splits between the moderate and high intensity uh, that changes as i said for me personally it means that uh, the training becomes more specific the closer you get to the race so usually more moderate intensity training closer to the race for for most athletes that i coach because they they train for triathlons and and to be fair most triathlons even sprint distance races are raised around threshold not not really above threshold so uh, so that's i guess the answer to that first question and as for the second question what the minimum number of hours required to get good results are so the results may not be as quick as on a high intensity training program if you have a Few amount of weekly hours because then you can really make a bigger difference with doing a lot of high intensity, but they will be probably sustaining for a longer period of time. So at the end of the day, you will probably develop better long term, and, and especially they will set you up to absorb more training later on. So, for example, if you increase your training volume later on, you will adapt better to that. Even if you were to increase your intensity later on and move away from a polarized approach, I think that uh, that, that would allow you to absorb that intensity slightly better that's just my guess but but that that's something that steven siler talks about a lot the concept that he talks biological durability i tend to use the term fatigue resistance and that's something that uh, joel filial uses as well a lot and go and listen to the interview i did with him in episode 169 i believe i'm just going to check that really quick Uh, no 172 sorry so so that fatigue resistance or biological durability that's what you build when you do when when you build up that base of low intensity training and that will allow you to absorb more training absorb training better whether it's higher volume higher intensity Uh, so that's the reason that you don't really if you have a long-term view you don't have to train a lot of hours for this concept to be a valuable structure to base your training around so, uh, as for number of hours, I mean, studies have been done in, I think, six hours, six to seven hours per week. That's where there is some evidence. I think that most studies that have been done in age groupers are still, they have some question marks around them. I'm, I'm not definitely not taking them at face value because I think I looked at them and, and all of them have some sort of flaw to them, I think. So, so I, I wouldn't say that that's really the best evidence in this case, the age group studies on polarized training. I think that the elite studies are much, much better, the work that Steven Seiler has done, uh, and, uh, and also just the anecdotal evidence. That's, that's what I think is, is more valuable, actually, in this case, than, than the, the trials that have been done with HU athletes for various reasons. But I hope that this answers your question anyway. A final question on polarization is from Nuno, who writes, is traditional periodization dead? if the adaptation to a consistent and prolonged stimulus will diminish with time wouldn't it be a good idea to alternate polarized macro blocks with pyramidal macro blocks to keep varying that stimulus uh, so so I think that it's uh, it's important here first of all to clarify what we mean with periodization and periodization lack of periodization sorry that does not mean that training doesn't change that training is static or monotonous Uh, periodization is the idea that we can use predefined structures of uh, a combination of intensity duration etc to create a predictable response to training and to me that idea that doesn't really hold much uh, water at all and uh, there's not a lot of evidence, if any, uh, to support it. For more information on this, listen to my interview with John Keeley in episode 148, uh, where we talked, that episode was named uh, uh, periodization theory confronting an inconvenient truth. So so that gives you an idea of what it's about. Uh, but that doesn't mean that said, that doesn't mean that training should be the same at all time and be monotonous. So yes, I would agree that it makes sense to use blocks of varying focuses and uh really as has been discussed already you, usually the amount of low intensity training doesn't change and the type of low intensity training may not even change all that much it might change a little bit maybe or you start out in pre-season with shorter long rides of course and then you build up to those longer long rides or long runs etc that's that's one uh, example of how that that block of low intensity training changes but you would still do uh, proportionally probably a similar amount of low intensity training wherever you are in the season. So so then what changes is what you do with the rest of your training and uh, whether you use it for moderate intensity training or high intensity training. And that's where I totally agree that it makes sense to uh, to change that stimulus around a bit, but how you do that that's uh, that can be quite different depending on you as an individual, what your strengths and weaknesses are, uh, demographics, your goal event, etc. and and that's why periodization as uh, the original idea and the meaning of periodization really is that you can create a prediction for for response to training, uh, why it doesn't really work because there are so many variables there that that go into that. But but in general, yes, definitely do change that stimulus and, and work with different blocks of different types of training. I totally agree with that, and and I personally and uh, as an as a coach and as an athlete, I would definitely not recommend training strictly polarized in the sense of the word that all your non-low intense training should be at or above or actually above threshold at for the entire year essentially i would i would definitely not recommend that i would definitely recommend regardless of your your discipline or your your sport to to have that to have more variation simply So there are a couple of other questions about periodization, but I think they've all been answered. So let's move on to the differences between disciplines and distances. There are a couple of questions about that. And the first one is from uh, Tim, who writes, uh, in what ways should we approach training uh, training for running uh, differently compared to training for cycling and swimming? And I'm going to assume here that this is from the context of uh, just the polarized training discussion to uh, make it a bit easier to uh, to answer. So so I guess personally, and I'm starting to do this uh, as a coach as well with the athletes that I coach, I've seen great success by doing more mid-zone work on the run compared to the bike and the swim. And uh, the prim- primary reasons are injury prevention and recovery. Uh, Because doing that uh, really high intensity stuff when running, it's so much more demanding compared to doing it on the bike and the swim since there is uh, such a large amount of uh, of muscle damage that takes takes place when you when you run at at really high intensities so so that's uh, something that i found that overall as a triathlete it helps because then you can make sure that you retain the quality of your of your subsequent sessions much better and it's usually much easier to recover from those really high intensity workouts when you're when you're biking or swimming uh, so that's that's something that i've seen personally i'm moving in that direction in my coaching can't really draw that many conclusions yet uh, other than so far so good Uh, but but that's uh, the main thing that comes to mind for me the next question comes from carrie who writes uh, can you cover training for sprint distance triathletes where intensity may be more important Okay. So I would say that it's still uh, just as important for sprint distance as it is for any other distance to, to build that base of low intensity. It shouldn't be any less important. It isn't. Uh, so there, there will need to be uh, just as much low intensity training as a proportion to your overall training for a sprint distance athlete as, as for any other uh, distance but uh, what you do with the rest of your training is what differs then and this is because of uh, the specificity so for a sprint distance race you have higher intensities you are working quite a lot right around threshold even a bit above above threshold Uh, so uh, so that's where you will be doing more of that very polarized work where your high intensity work is really high intensity compared to the long distance athlete who would be doing more mid-zone work and, and less of that high intensity work because that mid-zone or moderate intensity work is more specific for, for their distances. So that's where it differs. But other than that, your easy long rides, easy long runs, they, although you don't need them to complete a sprint distance race, that's not what I'm saying. But if you're trying to optimize your performance for a sprint distance triathlon, uh, you need to do those Longer rides, longer runs, they don't necessarily have to be quite as long as an Ironman or even half Ironman athlete. I would still on the run, if, I, if I'm if i coaching somebody who wants to optimize their sprint distance performance, uh, they would probably do a weekly 90 minute run. Uh, they would do a weekly three hour ride, something like that. So, so you don't need to go maybe four hours of cycling. You don't need to go two and a half hours on the run, but, but still like fairly substantial lengths for those easy base building runs. And of course, uh, all that, uh, padded with quite a few just low intensity, short bread and butter sessions, whether it's swimming, biking and running, that is just working on, uh, working on the, in that low-intensity zone, working on technique, those sorts of things. So there are much more similarities than there are differences uh, when it comes to the different uh, distances that we can train for as triathletes. The next topic here is about uh, polarized training and uh, VLA max or lactate building rate, uh, glycolytic capacity we could also call it. Uh, So this relates to, in particular, the episode, the interview that I did with uh, Sebastian Weber. And uh, that, I believe, was episode 169, actually. Yes, it was. Uh, So go and check that out. That's still one of the most, if not the most popular episode that I've done. Uh, The first question here is from Thomas, who writes, uh, I'd like to know what Dr. Seiler has to say about the concept of increasing VO2 max and decreasing VLA max, as presented in the interview with Sebastian Weber. Especially the purpose of decreasing VLA max contradicts the original concept of polarized training. Yes, yeah, so actually, I, I talked with Steven about this before or after our interview and and asked him and, and what we discussed and what we what our conclusion was is that it, it doesn't really contradict it at all. Maybe you're right in that it contradicts the original concept of polarized training when it truly was polarized. But as discussed in, last, uh, in the last Q&A, and uh, a part one, so episode 178, it has become, now when you look at different sports, different disciplines, more of a, a high, low-intensity training. Uh, so if you consider it from that perspective, then it doesn't contradict it at all. And I'm sure that Sebastian would would agree that a high amount of low-intensity training, a very high amount of low-intensity training is essential no matter what your metabolic profile is. So if you if you do an inside test and you find that you have a high VLA max and you want to uh, to decrease it to improve your threshold it doesn't mean that you start to do 50% of your training at moderate intensity it just means that the way the what you allocate your non low intensity training time to would be that kind of sweet spot or threshold or even tempo work that is uh, good for decreasing VLA max so so that's simply it that's that's the answer and and another aspect of this is that physiologically every single athlete always wants to increase their VO2 max and uh, the number one way to consistently and sustainably increase VO2 max is to have a consistent volume of low intensity training. It's a the tried, true and tested way to do that. And there's, there's no scenario where you would not want to increase VO2 max. So, so that's where, uh, where this training will not only help do that, but also it will build the base, the, the fatigue resistance, the biological durability to help you absorb specific training to increase VO2 max later as well. So that's an important point to, to keep in mind. And, and just as a general reminder here, uh, remember that, uh, that pyramidal, when we talk about it, it does not mean 50%, 40%, 10%. It means something like 80%, 15%, 5%. So so when we talk about for decreasing VLA max, needing a more pyramidal approach, it still falls within that big umbrella, that polarized training, which uh, again, I think it's an somewhat unlucky naming convention in my opinion. I'm not sure that Steven Seiler would agree. I, I think so personally based on the later research that has come out as well but but still that large chunk of low intensity training is always there and uh, and pyramidal training is no exception to that it means something like 80 15 5 or even 80 20 0 but it doesn't mean 50 40 10 in terms of percent low intensity percent moderate intensity percent high intensity So uh, so that's that. Dave writes, does the effectiveness of the polarized model vary based on athlete profile? For example, if an athlete has uh, a high VLA max, will a polarized training be uh, effective, sufficient to raise FTP? Uh, So uh, polarized training does not include any sweet spot work that works to reduce VLA max and therefore increase threshold. Is this a flaw in polarized training for an athlete with a high VLA max? Well, this, uh, it's basically a similar question or almost the same question. Uh, but, uh, remember that anything you do to increase VO2 max also improves threshold. Uh, so, uh, so that's, uh, that's something that I just described that, that polarized model is perfect for increasing VO2 max, uh, whether you do VO2 max intervals or not, because you get that, that big base. And then the second thing, the, the second question, whether you, it is uh, flawed for the high VLA max athlete. Uh, no, that's that's just basically the exact same answer as before, that you just allocate those non-low intensity training hours to, to the type of training that works to reduce VLA max. That being said, if you do the truly polarized training in the strictest sense of the term and your VLA max is high, that's where, yes, I would say that it's definitely not the ideal training approach. So, so in that sense, you, you are right but but again i i keep coming back to this that when i think about polarized training it's the original naming convention that came up from the first few studies but then later on we found that it's more like something like high low intensity training that is the main take take home message here that uh, that both i and steven want to instill here so so i guess that answers that question one more thing by the way, a related uh, teaser. Next week's interview will be with uh, Alan Cousins, uh, who many of you will probably be familiar with, a great coach and exercise physiologist in Boulder, and in that interview we'll focus on the topic of increasing VO2 max, the trainability of VO2 max, and Alan Cousins is a, a big proponent of of high low intensity training, so so that will be actually be the main topic of next week's interview so so definitely listen to that i'm pretty excited to record that interview i'm really looking forward to hear alan's thoughts i haven't done the interview yet so uh, yeah i'm uh, just waiting to to hear what what he has to say about it a couple of questions about uh, general physiology as it relates to polarized training Uh, we have uh, uh, biotechnique on the trainer road forum who writes uh, does power or pace at lt1 so the first lactate threshold or the aerobic threshold compared to vo2 max power pace move around much Uh, so is the percentage of uh, vo2 max power at lt1 something that can be improved with training or is it more static within an individual and only increases in conjunction with increases in vo2 max so, uh, in my experience, it does move, uh, a heck of a lot. It can move a heck of a lot, even without changes in VO2 max. So, uh, and, and that is one of the main, main things that we actually want to improve as endurance athletes in general. But depending on the distance, it becomes even more important, especially for Ironman athletes. This is probably the key, the number one key to success is that, that aerobic threshold. Uh, so, and, or LT1 and and this is another great argument for doing all this high low intensity training that it's probably the main the main way that you can actually move that that LT1 to a higher percentage of your VO2 max even without improving your VO2 max itself i think also that at a certain point you want to get a bit specific and do some training right at or or around the LT1 so you're not just doing all of your easy stuff super easy which i quite often do as an athlete uh, but at some point if your real focus is lt1 then maybe you do one run per week for example that is that has a segment of let's say 60 or 90 minutes at right at your lt1 heart rate or pace or power if it's a flat flat road uh, so uh, so that's something that uh, that could be discussed in more detail but i think in general just if you if you stick to your your eighty percent of training at low intensity, then uh, then that's going to take you most of the way there in getting a lot of improvements in how high you can get your l t one power or heart rate power or pace as a percentage of vo two max power or pace. And then we have another question from Martin, which is uh, about uh, this is a long one, so I'm going to shorten it a bit. So apologies here. Uh, because I'm trying to think on the on the spot here, which is not my biggest strength exactly. Uh, anyway, so uh, Martin writes. Uh, Stephen mentioned that uh, when you are truly in your low intensity zone, there should be minimal heart rate drift. And uh, Stephen's point was that heart rate should stay the same for 15 minutes in that low intensity zone as 60 minutes in the low intensity zone so my question is whether this idea can be used to to find the first lactate turn point or lt1 aerobic threshold whatever you want to call it and if we as an example use running could you increase the the speed or power of your low intensity runs on a weekly basis to gradually find the point at which your heart rate begins to drift and therefore where your lactate your first lactate threshold is So for example, week one, running at nine minutes per mile, minimal heart rate drift, then 8.55, minimal, 8.50, minimal, 8.45 in the fourth week, and you find a significant heart rate drift in the majority of the runs. Uh, And uh, week five and beyond, uh, your zone one heart rate, uh, your zone one runs return to below or slower than uh, than 8.45 minute per mile with heart rate drift in check. Uh, so yeah, I get this concept. It's, uh, it's an interesting thought, but I wouldn't trust the accuracy of this test as there is just, there are just too many factors that impact on heart rate drift. Even if you try to control for most of them, I don't really know that there's anything physiologically going on that by default causes heart rate to start drifting as soon as you pass the first lactate threshold. Uh, so, so I wouldn't trust it to be accurate nor to be precise. So. While it could potentially give you a rough benchmark, I, I do not really have a lot of confidence in this. Again, I, I don't just simply because I think the main reason is that we don't know that it's anything that happens exactly at, at the first threshold that causes your heart rate to start to drift as soon as you pass that threshold. Then we have a few other questions that i didn't categorize as anything the first one is an interesting one it's from haynes world who asks has is steven seiler killed off the need for professional coaches prescribing overly complicated training sessions to make their clients feel they're getting value when really all you have to do is train easy for a very long time and very hard for a short time so this is a funny one uh, because actually uh, it's uh, to say that all you have to do is train easy for a very long time and very hard for a short time that's easier said than done you if i had a a dollar for every time i had to tell an athlete that you're not going easy enough i would be a rich man so to on a more serious note all of the athletes that uh, were included in the research that is behind polarized training on the elite side of things uh, they are uh, world-class athletes and they all have coaches so uh, that tells you something the best in the world all have coaches if if you want to improve you, you need to have have coaches uh, plus the role of the coach has never been to prescribe overly complicated training sessions as as i just mentioned with that example it's just as much about telling the athletes what they're doing right and what they're not doing correctly in executing the training and uh, prescribing sessions writing programs in general is only a a smaller part of the coach's job. So, so that's quite a common misconception. Uh, but uh, coaching is not having a secret sauce training program. But but I guess that's a discussion for another time. But it was a, quite an interesting question. So I wanted to include that. Uh, then the next one is from uh, Lee Paul, who writes, Hi, Michael. I love your recent podcast with Steven Seiler. In order to achieve long sessions at low intensity... I feel that I would be able to do that much better on a treadmill for runs and an indoor smart trainer for bike rides. I have talked to some triathletes who spend a lot of time on treadmills and indoor trainers. Is there any drawback to spending a large part of training on treadmills and indoor trainers? Uh, I would say no, uh, there's no drawback to spending a lot of time on them. Uh, but what you don't want to do is to completely eliminate outdoor training uh, because you do want to get some specificity in training, first of all. You want to have, especially on the bike, I think it's very important to learn to really use terrain to your advantage, to learn to retain momentum, but also on the run, to learn to run, even if it's just very minor hills, it still is a bit of an art to learn to run them effectively and run at the right pace. So you would increase your effort a bit, but you wouldn't increase it too much. Uh, Those sorts of things, dealing with terrain, also dealing with weather conditions so changes in weather conditions that's important and and for running in particular to get that muscular resilience to deal with the pounding on the streets as opposed to the treadmill which is a different thing and this is something that one of my athletes uh, has actually dealt with because they had a lot of snowstorms over the winter so he was stuck on the treadmill and then as he could finally go outside and run uh he found that uh, that he was really getting to to his uh, his muscles and and they were really trashed after after those fir- first few runs and and it took some time to to then uh, get those muscles again to to be resilient enough to to be able to to run outdoors normally without that extended uh, muscle soreness so so i say i think that you can definitely do the majority of your training indoors and it can be very effective but i just think that you do want to do some of your training outdoors definitely Then we have a question from Rikard in Sweden who writes uh, this is in Swedish so I'm going to translate on the fly. Um this first question is about uh, basically what are the consequences if you if you unintentionally cross the first lactate threshold ceiling for low intensity for for a few minutes for example when running or riding up a hill or something like that. How careful do you have to be? uh is is it more important to think about the average heart rate uh, or compared to time in zone heart rate so make sure that the uh, most amount of the training session is is in that low intensity zone uh et cetera are you ruining your the effects of the training if if you are going above that that first threshold so short answer it's not a problem if there are some shorter periods above that threshold at all. It's nothing, nothing magical happens there. The important thing is that time in zone, not your average heart rate. So for example, let's say that 10% of your, your run or your ride, you end up with a heart rate that is higher than, than that threshold. That's not a problem at all. Uh, if 50% of your time is spent above that threshold, then that's a bigger issue. And regardless of what your average heart rate is even if your average heart rate is in the right zone then that's still an issue if that time in zone is skewed so that 50 percent of the session is in the moderate intensity zone so look at that time in zone and try to minimize the time spent outside of the low intensity zone when you're doing your easy workouts but nothing disastrous happens when your heart rate goes above that low intensity zone. the next question here is um again from ricard what should you do regarding warm-up with uh, easy easy training compared to to high intensity training uh, so my answer here is that there's no specific warm-up needed uh, i would just recommend going going off by feel easy making sure that you go easy enough uh, at least for me, usually the first 10 minutes or so will automatically be the slowest minutes while I'm still getting warm, warmed up, whether it's swimming, cycling or riding. And this is at the same easy effort. Heart rate keeps increasing for a little bit and then it stabilizes, of course, well within that uh, that easy intensity or low intensity zone. Uh, so the other question here about warmups, another question, but the other comment that I should make about it is that for swimming and running, it's great to do a short mobility routine, but that's, uh, of course, more for technique rather than, than physiology and cardiovascular reasons. Uh, so I always do a mobility routine before my swims. I try to do it before my runs. I'm not quite as diligent before running, but uh, getting there, getting there. Uh, finally, the final question from Richard is uh, that uh, I base my... My running and riding zones from the zones that you prescribed in some early episodes on the podcast Uh, but uh, in that in those episodes you calculate uh, the threshold heart rate from a 20-minute test and then all zones from that threshold heart rate however now i get the impression that you are transitioning to using max heart rate is that correct and in that case how do you calculate it uh there are some other questions here but i'll just go right to to answering answering the way that i use zones now and it has indeed evolved a bit so those earlier episodes aren't quite up to speed so so here's a summary of what i do now i prefer to prescribe and uh, and execute low intensity sessions based on heart rate and rpe Uh, heart rate should be low but also i think that in most cases rpe should be low so if heart rate is low but rpe is moderate or high then you should still slow down Uh, so so in terms of heart rate i have two options for calculating heart rate zones and i use both and see what fits best and the first one is based on a 20 minute test usually or a max 20 minute heart rate which might be a climb uh, on uh, on a training ride so or or a race situation what's the maximum 20 minutes that you could sustain in a race uh, or whatever distance so so you can take that from really wherever it doesn't have to be a specific 20 minute test and the heart rate max it should uh, be a true heart rate max you need to check that it's not an artifact not not an incorrect reading but actually something that makes sense so so you need to be quite careful with these input data to make sure that they're actually correct because otherwise you have you know a garbage in garbage out but the way that i calculate this if you use the the 20 minute method then i calculate the Lactate threshold heart rate or the LT2 heart rate as 94% of that 20 minute max heart rate. And uh, then as for the ceiling for the low intensity training zone or the estimate for LT1, if you will, that is then 86% of that threshold heart rate. So for an example, say that you, let's say that you do a 20 minute test and, and your 20 minute heart rate that you get is 190. Then you take that times 94% to get 169 as your lactate threshold heart rate. So uh, 190 times 94% or times 0.94. Then you take that 169 times 0.86 or 86% and that gives you 145 beats per minute as your ceiling for low-intensity training. If you're just lazy and you don't need your lactate threshold heart rate, you can just directly take 081 times that uh, first number, that 190, which was your 20 minute heart rate. So 0.81 times uh, 190 would be the same, 145 VPM. With heart rate max, I go directly to calculating that estimate for LT1, which is also, of course, the ceiling. Uh, for your low intensity zone so that would be in the first example that's 145 bpm and by the way for those that weren't following that's what you should stay below for the low intensity training so but if you use heart rate max i use uh, the 75 percent proposed by steven seiler directly and uh, very often at least when i have a lot of good data from from an athlete these two approaches will give very similar results so i'm going to do some math on the fly here actually 145 uh that means that if this athlete that did 190 for for their uh 20 minute test if uh if they have a maximum heart rate that was a 190 average uh if they have uh, a maximum heart rate of about 194 sorry i think that actually i'm going to check something here real quick because i think i yes it was actually 180 i i calculated it correctly but i wrote it down incorrectly so let's say so in that first example you had 180 times 0.94 that's 169 and then that times uh, 0.86 would be 145 so you did a 20 minute test and you had an average 180 that gives you a ceiling for low intensity 145 now in that same situation for if you use max heart rate instead that means that if you have a max heart rate of 193 beats per minute that would give you the exact same 145 beats per minute as as the threshold. And of course, you're very rarely going to get exact matches, and that's not the point either. But more often than not, they're going to be be very close. If there is a difference, I tend to go with the option that gives a higher approximation for that ceiling or that LT1. And it tends to be the 20-minute heart rate approach. For moderate intensity training and high intensity training, I prefer pace and power. And also RPE, of course, as primary metrics and guides for intensity. But uh, w- And when using that on a 20-minute test as a basis, I use 91% of 20-minute pace or power and not 95% to get to the threshold pace or threshold power. And and after this, I take the, the threshold. And then for cycling, I use the classic Koggen zones more or less. So 55% is the ceiling for zone one, 75% for zone two and that is the low intensity ceiling and 90% for zone 3 105% for zone 4 120% for zone 5 for running pace and power i use my own zones that i've found with plenty of trial and error to work very well and they are 74% of of threshold power pace is uh, zone 1 the zone 1 ceiling 85% is the zone 2 ceiling 95% is the zone 3 ceiling 103% is the zone 4 ceiling and 112% is the zone 5 ceiling and these are quite similar to plenty of other zones you'll find out there but there are some differences and in particular of interest for this episode you'll note that the ceiling of zone 2 ends up being quite a bit lower and in my opinion quite a bit more correct than with most other systems and I do have a spreadsheet where you can use either all of these methods to set your zones I'll link to it in the show notes Uh, It's a a Google Sheet, so a calculator essentially where you can input your values and get your zones automatically. Uh, So it's been a work in progress and it's been updated along the way. And now it should be working just fine. But uh, do let me know your feedback and its ease of use. I know I linked to a video in that spreadsheet on how to use that spreadsheet. And in that video, it's actually an older version, so it's not quite up to speed. So bear with that. But I think it should be easy enough to figure out how to use that. So a link to that will be in the show notes and the episode description. Just two final questions. The first one is from uh, uh, Mathieu Despatie, who writes, Hi, Michael. I was just listening to the interview with uh, Steven Seiler and uh, the follow-up, and they were really excellent. Uh, I have a question regarding zone four training. Seiler seems to indicate that zone four starts right at the second threshold. If we compare this to the traditional five zone model that we use in cycling, for example, zone four usually starts at 90% of our FTP. If we have a proper FTP and or properly estimated FTP or second threshold, would Seiler's zone four actually start at right at that threshold? So 100% of that so uh, this is a good question Uh, it's a bit tricky to compare as the five zone model that siler references is the one used by the norwegian olympic committee and it's based on on lactate and or percent of max heart rate so zone four in that system is four to six millimoles of lactate so that means that on average yes it would start right at your threshold because on average most people's second threshold is at around four millimoles of lactate But if we look at the heart rate or percent of max heart rate, we see that that zone stretches from 87 to 92% of max heart rate. And that's a bit trickier to interpret. Dr. Seiler himself said in our interview that typically lactate threshold heart rate ends up being around 90% of max heart rate. So, So in that model, you can see that maybe zone 4, it doesn't start as low as 90% of FTP, quote unquote but it certainly may start a bit below threshold when we're using the the heart rate approach so maybe 95% if we want to to give it an estimate and since i would say that since threshold your threshold is a moving target anyway i try not to see it as a point but as a range that probably starts right around 95% so so even so i think that we can say that yes that fyson model in that fyson model that he references zone 4 does start more or less at threshold not below it but uh, then again we can make the same argument for the traditional zones that maybe threshold starts at 95% and not 100% so I'm not sure that I'm really answering your question here but uh, I, I guess that to to sum it up yes I, I think that the zone 4 is set a little bit higher in, in that 5 zone model compared to the traditional Cogan models for example The final question is from Colin Merton, who writes, I just finished the twin episodes on polarized training and found them very interesting. I have some questions around lactate testing to help accurately set your training zones. If you go down the lab-based lactate testing route, how frequently would you need to retest? I assume it's like FTP since LT2 is essentially your FTP, which hopefully is increasing as the year goes by. Does your LT1 also move around? Also, would the tests be done on both running and cycling or just on cycling and then you can scale it to running? So the answer here is that, well, first of all, hopefully LT1 also does shift and uh, quite significantly. I think it's very important that it does. uh, But uh, a common consequence of not doing enough low-intensity training or not doing the low-intensity training easy enough is that it doesn't. So that's what we're trying to avoid and why we spent so much uh, so much air with on uh, on the podcast here recently on on that topic uh, so to answer your question about how often to test in an ideal world i would say that uh, four times per year or so would be would be great even more depending on how how much you like to test and ideally that would be both cycling and running but the great thing here is that if you use heart rate your heart rate zones are not going to change much, if at all, within a season. You can, for for all intents and purposes, you can assume that it's going to stay pretty much the same. So you could test once, and then use heart rate and also RPE, of course, to see you through the season, and that's it. You would use performances in workouts and races as progress benchmarks. Do you actually need to know your your lt two power or pace if you know that you're improving? And if you know that based on heart rate zones and RPE, you can, you can follow your prescribed sessions perfectly. I don't think that you do. So you can get away perfectly. You can get 100% of the benefit of your training plan by testing just once. And I'm sure that this will be quite a relief, uh, if, uh, for many, because it's obviously a, a budgeting issue as well to, uh, a cost to, to go and test often. So. Uh, so I think that if you go this route, you can get most of the benefits for for less of the investment. As for cycling versus running, if you're really on a budget, uh, then you can scale those heart rate zones for cycling based on running or vice versa. So for example, if you know that your running max heart rate is 190 and your cycling max heart rate is 180, I would just subtract 10 from all your bike heart rate zones based on a running test that you actually performed or vice versa Uh, so so you could go either way there and and it will be close enough and but that is if you actually know that that those max heart rates are when you were actually at the limit and and it's very likely a a pretty true reflection of what your maximum heart rates for those specific disciplines uh, would be so so finally to elaborate a little bit on on what i mean by you can do the training plan without knowing your lt2 power so to give you an example well first of all as i mentioned i prefer to train low intensity training to do that based on heart rate and also rpe anyway having both of them there both of them would be need to be in check Uh, then for moderate and high intensity training i mentioned i prefer power pace and rpe so let's say you have a three times 15 minutes threshold workout and well you know what threshold feels like for one thing based on that first test and after that you may have been doing workouts around that intensity or slightly lower or slightly higher and you can just scale Uh, so and you also know your heart rate and for those 15 minute threshold workouts heart rate can be a help although i wouldn't go completely by heart rate because then what ends up happening is that probably your power is going to be lower in those ladder intervals just because of heart rate drift but Really, it's as simple as if you have that three times 15 minute threshold workout, it becomes just a question of going at the intensity that you can just about sustain for three times 15 minutes. Uh, and that this is the same for any hard workouts. If it's four times four minutes at VO2 max, go as hard as you can just about sustain for four times four minutes. Uh, so it really is quite simple. And this is not uh, contradictory to what I said in the past and what I strongly believe that you shouldn't absolutely kill yourself or try to pr in your workouts but it means that if you rate your session on how hard you went on a scale from one to ten you want those hard workouts to be eight out of ten or nine out of ten almost every single time very rarely do you want a ten out of ten but but if you have nines out of ten every single time that's perfectly fine i think so you want to to be close to the limit not not quite at the limit but you should have A little bit of energy left to prolong that last interval if you would have needed, or maybe to have added five watts extra to that last interval if it would have been needed, but not much more than that. So, so a little, little bit of spare fuel in the tank, not not much more than that. That's how you know that you did the workout correctly, and you don't need to know what your threshold power is to, to do that. And your, if you base that workout on, for example, you want to do it at 100% of threshold, If your threshold has moved, you may actually be doing it at a, an intensity that is less ideal compared to doing it based on RPE. And then, of course, you should be measuring your power if you're using power and see what that power is and also use power as a baseline. If you know that you did three times 12 minutes last week at, at 300 watts and then you think that, well, it felt quite good. I think I can definitely sustain 300, maybe even 305 for this three times 15 minute workout, use that knowledge for sure. But, uh, but if your tested threshold would have been 290 a couple of weeks ago, then actually doing that workout at 290 may be holding you back back unnecessarily. So so that's the reason that I say that you don't necessarily need to know your LT2 throughout the season, even if it moves around, and even if I think that you should be training to power and pace when it comes to those high-intensity workouts. Uh, so you should be using all that information, but you don't necessarily need to know your LT2 and base your workouts on on that exact on exact percentages of that uh, i hope that that makes sense and that's quite an, an important question so so yeah uh, hope that that makes sense again so uh, that's it for today my voice is about to to crack soon i've been talking for a long time uh, so I'll just send you to go and uh, check out the questions and uh, uh, the show notes on thattrafflonshow.com or uh forward slash TTS 185. That's where you'll find this particular episode. I'll link to quite a few related episodes there, including uh, part one of this polarized trading Q&A. So that was episode 178. And of course, the interview with Steven Seiler, episode 177, also Episode 120, Siler's Hierarchy of Endurance Training Needs, which is a solo episode, and two interviews with Adil Tweiten and Joel Filial, two really great interviews that I really think you should listen to, episode 154 and 172. Of course, if I were to do this uh, episode a week or two later, I would probably also add the interview with Alan Cousins, episode 186, to that list, because I have a feeling that there will be uh, more on that same theme. Uh, because in that episode we'll talk about trainability of vo2 max how fixed it is or is not and how we actually can train properly to really improve it so uh, that's uh, something that you should definitely tune in for and subscribe so that you don't miss it when it comes out final piece of house cleaning we now have an instagram account so welcome to 2015 or something like that Um, i think i'm about four years late to the party uh, but it's uh Better late than never. That Instagram account is uh, at Scientific triathlon HQ. If you know the person that has the handle Scientific Triathlon, maybe try asking them if they'd like to give it up. <laughs> so I'd like that, but uh, it wasn't available. So Scientific Triathlon HQ it is. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com and get 20% off your entire order, whether it's wetsuits, trisuits, uh, performance eyewear with the promo code TTS, all caps. And thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get your individual hydration strategy and get your first box or tube of electrolyte products for free. With the promo code that on show all one word all caps. Thank you as always for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.